in, we're in Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 28. This is the big one. This is the longest literary unit in the book of Deuteronomy. So we're going to probably spend two weeks on it because I don't know if we can cover it all in one week. But remember last week we talked about when you make a covenant, there will be blessings and there will be curses. This is not just arbitrary stuff. These are legal guidelines in the ancient world. And that's something that I tried to impress last week by reading a couple of the vassal treaties to you. So I'm going to read you another one this week because I really want you and everybody listening and watching on the podcast to get a feel for what life in the ancient Near East was like. Because if we don't do that, we read our own uh, experiences into the text. And that's how we come up with all kinds of stuff. Whether it's ideas about God or ideas about how we should live as a society or the gospel or this and that. And so the question is always, the fundamental question in reading the Bible, before you ever ask, what does this mean to me? Like, that's the worst question to start Bible study with. Never ask, what does this mean to me? First ask, what did this mean to them? When you find out what it meant to them, then you can ask, now what does this mean to me, given what it meant to them? Because it can't mean to us what it, to something that it never meant to them and have any biblical authority behind. Right? In other words, we can't read a text, and people do this all the time. I teach on Revelation, and no book is more prevalent with this than Revelation. People read Revelation, and they're like, oh, I think this is this Middle East character, and this is this world leader, and this is this credit card chip that you're going to put in your skin, and this is this and that. And I'm just like, ooh, just slow your roll. Stop all of that. Who was the book written to? What would this have meant to the seven churches in Asia Minor? Because they're the audience. And just like with Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, any book written to any other audience, you've got to know what it meant to them first. Then we can say, now in light of that, what does it mean to us? So, so just, it happens mostly, as I said, it happens all the time in Revelation, but it happens in other parts of the Bible too, and especially the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is also unfamiliar territory to a lot of Christians and Jews. Um, this is we're in we're entering into a foreign world. So what I want to do first, I'm going to again read. I'm bringing I brought some copies uh, or I read from last time from some ancient Near East covenant treaties. I want to read another one because it has very, very close parallels to what we're going to read in Deuteronomy. This one comes from after the time of Deuteronomy, and you can hear when you read. I'm going to read this. This is this is an Assyrian treaty, and I want you to listen to the language that the Assyrians had been using. Because it is drawn from the common image bank of earlier ancient Near East treaties, which we looked at last week, and of which Deuteronomy is also part of. So this is like a milieu. This is, it's not like Deuteronomy was copying the Assyrian treaties, or the Assyrian treaties were copying Deuteronomy. No, it was they all come from a world with shared images and shared understandings and shared concepts. So this is the world that we have to enter into as we're reading through these passages, especially this chapter, which gets pretty dark. So... There's a treaty. <clears throat> this is the uh, Treaty of Esarhaddon, and he's a, a Syrian lord. Um, and one of the stipulations, page after page, uh, it's a vassal treaty between, you know, again, he's the suzerain, makes a treaty with a vassal, which means they're going to serve him. So it starts with, you know, this is the Treaty of Esarhaddon, king of the world, king of Assyria, son of Sennacherib, likewise king of the world, king of Assyria, on and on and on. The, uh, the opening, the, the historical prologue. Um, or excuse me, the preamble. And then the treaty goes on to talk about how, how the treaty came about, what he did for the person, why they're entering into this agreement. That's the historical prologue that we looked at. 
Um, the Deuteronomy has kind of done that same thing. Hey, this is how I brought you out of Egypt. This is why you're serving me. Your parents died in the desert because they broke my covenant, but you are going to get a chance to live if you keep my covenant. So it's the, the same kind of thing. It's what we'd expect in a treaty. And then the Esarhaddon Treaty is interesting because it says, after all these if, 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 if you, and he's listing all these ways that they could rebel, if you side with instigators in a revolt, if someone in the palace starts a revolt, if you convene an assembly and take an oath uh, to give the kingship to another among you, if you help onto the throne one of this uh, brothers or uncles or cousins, if you do not fight for the crown, if you, it's all these if, 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 if you do these things, if you do these things, if you do these things. So these are the stipulations that Esarhaddon is giving to his vassals, like God has done in the past 15 chapters of Deuteronomy that we've been in. Then, and he ends it with, if you do not love the crown prince designate Ashurbanipal, son of your lord Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, as you love your own lives. That's the key, is Esarhaddon is telling his vassals, you're going to honor me, and you're going to love my son, who's going to take the throne after me, as you would love your own life. This is the language of the ancient Near East. It doesn't mean sentimental love. It means be loyal to. You're going to be loyal to my son. This is the way when God says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It doesn't mean feel puppy dog and butterflies. It means love him, serve him, devote yourself to him as any other person would their devoted king. So even the language of love is used in the Bible. It has a specific meaning in these treaty format settings. So it goes on to say, if you do not love the crown prince uh, as you love your own lives, and if you, and it goes on to list some more ifs, it says, then the curses come in. And there's a lot of the curses. And each one's like, you know, of a different God. Um, may, you know, may Ninlil do this. May Anu do this. May Sin do this. May Shamash do this. Moon God, Sun God. You know, these are all of the curses. May Marduk do this, you know, the Babylonian God. Calling down curse after curse after curse of the Babylonian or the Assyrian gods onto the covenant breaker. And the curses are meant to be terrible because they're meant to detour you from ever wanting to break the treaty. And so they're vivid. And it goes on to say, after a bunch of all the different gods are named and their curses, then may all the gods who are named in this treaty tablet Reduce your soil in size to be as narrow as a brick. Turn your soil into iron so that no one may cut a furrow in it. Just as rain does not fall from a copper sky, so may there come neither rain nor dew upon your fields and meadows, but let it rain burning coals in your land instead of dew. Just as lead does not resist fire, so may you not resist your enemies, but take your sons and daughters by the hand and flee. Like lead, if you put it in fire, it just kind of melts, right? It doesn't stay firm. That's the image. May, that's how you, may you be. But when your enemies come, you just melt away in fear. Uh, these, the, the covenant curses are very vivid. They're visual images. They're meant to, again, to stoke these fears. May Shamash, who's the sun god, plow up your cities and districts with an iron plow. Just as this you is cut open and the flesh of its young placed in its mouth, and that would be a, a sacrificial ceremony with a, a lamb, so may he, Shamash, make you eat in your hunger the flesh of your brothers, your sons, and your daughters. In other words, may this be, the curses be so terrible that you resort to cannibalism because of the siege of your enemies against you. 
Just as these yearlings and spring lambs, male and female, are cut open and their entrails are rolled around their feet, again, this is preparation of the butcher's uh, sacrifice, so may the entrails of your sons and daughters be rolled around your feet. Just as a snake and a mongoose do not enter the same hole and do not live there, but plot of cutting each other's throat, so may you and your women not enter the same house, not lie down in the same bed, but plot of cutting each other's throat. Just as bread and wine enter the intestines, so may they, the gods, let this oath enter your intestines and the intestines of your sons and daughters. Just as you can blow water out of a tube, so may they blow away you, your women, your sons, your daughters. May they make your rivers, your springs, and their wells flow backwards, meaning back into the ground. Just as honey is sweet, so may the blood of your women, your sons, and daughters taste sweet in your mouths. Just as the, and this, this broken part is alive, so may you uh, who are alive, your flesh, the flesh of your women, your sons, and your daughters be, and the text is broken there, we, just, we don't know what it says. But all of these curses are being called, and they're like vivid, shocking, meant to make you almost want to throw up curses. That's the, that's the whole point of it. May they blacken your flesh, the flesh of the skin of your women, your brothers, your sons, your daughters, like pitch. May your flesh and the flesh of your women, your brothers, your sons and daughters be used up like the flesh of a chameleon. I guess the shedding of the skin. Just as a honeycomb is pierced through and through with holes, so may holes be pierced through and through in your flesh, the flesh of your women, your brothers, your sons, your daughters, while you are alive. May they, the gods, let lice, caterpillars, and other field pests eat up your land and your district as if it were locusts. May they squash you as a fly in the hand of your enemies. May your enemies mash you. Just as this bed bug stinks, so may your breath stink before God, King, and men. That's my favorite one of all these awful curses. Just as this bed bug stinks, may your breath be stink. Some people have already experienced that curse, apparently, um, in my life at least. May they strangle you, your women, your sons, and daughters with a cord. Just as this chariot is splattered with blood up to its running board, so may they splatter your chariots in the midst of your enemies with your own blood. May they spin you like a spindle whirl. May they use you like women in the sight of your enemy. May they cause you, your brothers, your sons, and daughters, to go backward like a crab. That's another funny image. Uh, I guess like crabs scurrying around backwards. May they surround you like an evil fire, just as this oil enters your flesh, so they may make this oath enter your flesh, the flesh of your sons, your brothers, and your daughters. And be putting oil on you as a, for the ceremony, being anointed with oil. And as this oil flows, and these are things that would be done during these ceremonies that would have vivid images. Um, so it goes on. I mean, it's, you know, may they slaughter you, your women, your brothers, your sons and daughters like uh, young goats. Um, just as the inside of this hole is empty, may they make your insides empty. I guess there would be a hole that they would go to. And, you know, all of these, just, I wanted you to see and get the feel of this vivid, like the, the shocking imagery, intentional imagery. Because all of these curses, and that's what these are, may this happen. It's not like saying, I'm going to make this happen. These are curses, meaning the gods are the ones who I'm asking or entreating to make this happen. So what the covenant curses are an expected part of a covenant treaty. And they're supposed to be graphic. They're supposed to be scary. They're supposed to be disgusting. They're supposed to make you revolt in their presence. It's a very vivid, intentional way of saying, do not break this treaty. It's that important. So now, that was Esarhaddon's treaty. Now we turn to Deuteronomy, a couple hundred years before, and we read... Chapter 28, after the curses that have been listed in chapter 27, we looked at last week, the Dodecalogue. 
Now there's chapter 28. First, he's going to start with blessings. Then there's going to be like twice as many curses. In the, in the I believe it's the Hammurabi Code, the number of blessings to curses, the ratio is 1 to 20. 20 times as many curses as there are blessings. In Esarhaddon, it's, there's still more curses than blessings. Most of the ancient Near East treaties, there's more curses than blessings. It's intended to be shocking. It's intended to be scary. It's intended to make you go, oh, oh my gosh, what, what is this? Like it, it, it needs to have that effect. So start with the blessings. Verse 20, chapter 28, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Remember the covenant promise to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, in order for that to happen, you have to obey so that you can be exalted, so that all the nations look to you and see your obedience and our relationship and are drawn to that. That's the plan all along. So God's saying, so if you do this part, now that we're in this stage of the game, if you keep the commands, you are fulfilling the calling that I gave, the promise I gave to your ancestor Abraham. You're the fulfillment of that now. You're part of the plan. So if you do those things, there's a poetic section here. The NIV separates verses 3 through 6 because this is poetry. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come out and blessed, come in and blessed when you go out. These are a series of, of merisms which is like the, saying the opposites and meaning everything in between. When you come out and when you go in, that means everywhere you go, not just when you come out and when you go in. It's a way of saying it. It's like when we say from the cradle to the grave or alpha and omega. We mean everything. So it's this, this blanket blessing. And it's all the blessings that God is giving to the, the people in Canaan who Israel is going to dispossess. They do all of the detestable deeds and things that they do to their gods in order to get these blessings. The reason they do pagan Baal sex orgies is so that Baal and Asher will bless their crops, their womb, their livestock, their kneading trough, their grain. That's the reason. The reason they sacrifice their children to Moloch or to Chemosh is so that their lands will be blessed, that rains will be sent, that disease will be kept away because they believe the gods that they are devoting things to, whether it's sex or offspring or anything in between, are the ones who are in charge of those things. And so God's saying, if you keep my commands, that's how all those things will happen. It doesn't matter what ritual incantations you do. It doesn't matter what gods or goddesses you pray to. It doesn't matter who you invoke. Keep my commands. What commands? The commands he's given for the past 20 chapters. Keep these commands, and then all of these things will happen. He goes on, verse 7. The Lord, remember, every time it says Lord, it's Yahweh. It's his personal name. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They'll come at you from one direction, but flee in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. It's a stipulation. Yeah. If, yeah. if, you know, we're used to on this side of the cross saying it's a done deal. It's all done. I don't have to do anything. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. 
slow down. <laughs> Jesus paid it all in the way of getting you out of sin and redeeming your soul. But he didn't just leave it there. There is an if that happens after salvation, which is what Israel's experience. Remember, they're out of Egypt. They've been saved, but they're not in Canaan yet. They're not in the promised land. They're in the in-between time. So if they do these things, then that shows they are God's redeemed people and that they will enter into the land. And there's a correlation. The New Testament makes it specifically with this generation. The apostles say all these things were written for us, for us, for our benefit to read and understand. But we don't get it if we don't know their situation and the, the mindset that they were thinking of these things through. So the Lord will do all these things if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all the peoples on the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. And this language, fear you, is the same language used back when God gave, after the flood, Noah and his sons, he reinstituted the creation command. And he said, I'll put the fear of you upon all the animals. And it's a meaning, it's priority. It's not like the animals are terrified. It's like, no, the animals recognize you're over them. And that's the same language used here. It's God saying, if you obey, then I will elevate you above all these powerful nations. And they will actually fear you. Now think about this. This is before any concept of a nation state of Israel existed. This is before any army. This is before any of the kind of stuff we think about. Israel was at this point a wandering tribe or group of 12 tribes of nomadic former slaves. They had no land of their own. Even their promised land, they never owned it. Abraham never, he owned one parcel of land in Canaan his entire life and it was his grave. That's all he ever owned and he died. Isaac, Jacob, they never owned any land. They were sojourners. They went down to Egypt 400 years, longer than we've been a nation. Now, finally, this rabble of slaves, this group of people who have been landless for the better half of a millennium are now coming into the promised land. So God is telling them, this is what I have in store for you if you live as my vassals. And of course, the promises are going to have to do with what? Land, security, having an elevated national presence, all the things that Israel's never had. So these are the things that, God, that, that they want, that all the other nations pine after and make war after. And God's saying, I'll give you all these things. Verse 12, the Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the works of your hands. You'll lend to many nations, but borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail, if you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Israel had only been at the bottom. They'd only known life at the bottom for their entire existence, going all the way back to Abraham. And so now he's giving them the chance that Moses, Moses think of this, remember, this is God speaking, but it's Moses speaking it to the people. He's standing on Mount Nebo. So imagine we're on a mountaintop here mountain you guys are camped there down around the mountain Canaan is that way okay so I'm speaking to you you're facing me and I'm like that's where you're gonna go that's what you're gonna do and you turn and look and it's these mountains and this this land it's foreboding it's got giants that live there people that are strong at least and powerful all this stuff and I'm rallying you and I'm like guys listen this is all gonna be yours if if you do what God's telling you to, if, 
just do what he's telling you. Don't worry about the giant people with their giant armies and their giant technologies and their sharp iron and all the stuff that you don't have. Don't worry about how are we going to get our crops watered. This is a mountain country. We're used to Egypt where you dig and make canals and that's how the you know, regular crops grow. Here it's barren. You just rely on the rain. And God's like, yes. And who controls the rain? I do. So rely on me. Rain's going to come. It's a huge leap of faith, and it's a test of faith. And Moses is doing it. He's rallying the troops. If you saw Braveheart, right? Remember William Wallace riding up, and he's like giving the guys that are scared and nervous. It's like, no, you can go do this. You can beat the, the, you know, the English today. Just imagine Moses standing there with half of his face painted blue and a big broadsword in his hand if you need to. But it's that same image. He's trying to motivate Israel. These are sermons in the form of an ancient Near East treaty. So he's telling them, this is what awaits you if you just do what God has asked of you. Which he's just given them the stipulations over the past, like we said, 20 chapters. However, it's a treaty text. Treaty texts have blessings. That's great. They also have curses. This is what awaits you if you don't. It's not just if you don't obey God, then you won't get those things. Now, if you don't obey God, you're going to get the opposite of those things. You see the difference? It's not just, oh, if you don't obey God, you're going to miss out on your blessing. No, no, no. You're going to be cursed. You're going to be cursed with the curses of hell. That's a big difference between missing a blessing and being cursed. And God's not saying, no, you're just not going to get the blessing. No, you're going to get something. It's going to be the curse, which is the opposite of the blessing. The curses are as bad as the blessings are good. So don't choose the curse. It's a very simple, choose this day who you will serve kind of moment. That's exactly what Joshua will tell the people shortly after this. So it goes on. It just reverses everything he just said. If, however, you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. What did, what did Egypt try to do when Israel fled? They tried to overtake them, to capture them back. So these curses are presented as like animated living entity that wants to re-enslave Israel back to what they were, what they were freed from. That's a metaphor for sin that runs through the Bible, by the way. Uh, I wrote a paper on it. It's on my website. If you're interested in reading, I'll give you the link. But it says, if you don't do these things, you will be, and this is the opposite of the poem in the previous section, you will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your land, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. Very clear. The opposite of what happens for blessing. The Lord, he's not done. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to. Until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, with, 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 which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze. The ground beneath you iron. This is exactly what Esarhaddon was also uh, threatening his people. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll come at them from one direction, but will flee from them in seven. And you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Not a sign of blessing. Not exalted of the kingdoms of the earth. You'll become a thing of horror. A thing of reproach. 
all of this is happening on the world stage. God's, Moses is letting the people know history is watching. The world is watching. This matters. So, <clears throat> verse 26, your carcasses will be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and the tumors, festering sores, and the itch from which you cannot be cured. One of those terms is possibly, probably hemorrhoids. <laughs> Just a fun fact. Um, the kinds of curses and things. That, I mean, if you've ever had bad hemorrhoids, then I'm sure you don't want to <laughs> you see the cursing involved in that. Um, but these are, he's cursing, he's like skin diseases, like all the things, remember all the things he afflicted Egypt with. It's like Egypt's being reversed. The creation blessing is being reversed. The Abrahamic promise is being reversed. Everything's being reversed. Why? If they abandon the Lord. If they turn away from the Lord. This is what awaits. The Lord will afflict you. Verse 28. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you'll grope around like a blind man in the dark. You'll be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you'll be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. You'll be pledged to be married to a woman, but another will take her and ravish her. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. These were blessings that were promised, if you remember, a few chapters back in Deuteronomy. That, that God wants you to build a house, enjoy its fruit, be married, enjoy time with your wife. All these things were the promises for God's people. Now this is reversing them. Verse 31, your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you'll eat none of it. Your donkey will be forcibly taken from you and not return. Your sheep will be given to your enemies and no one will rescue them. Your sons and daughters will be given to another nation. You will wear out your eyes, watching for them day after day, powerless to lift a hand. A people that you do not know will eat what your land and labor produce, and you will have nothing but cruel oppression all your days. The sights you see will drive you mad. The Lord will afflict your knees and legs with painful boils that cannot be cured, spreading from the soles of your feet to the top of your head. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your fathers. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror and an object of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour you. You'll plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you'll not drink the wine or gather the grapes because the worms will eat them. You'll have olive trees throughout your country, but you'll not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You'll have sons and daughters, but you'll not keep them because they'll go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. The immigrant who lives among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. He will lend to you, but you will not lend to him. He will be the head, you will be the tail. All these curses will come upon you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed. Because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees He gave you. They will be a sign and a wonder to you and your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Therefore, in hunger and thirst and nakedness and dire poverty, you'll serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He'll put an iron yoke on your neck until he is destroyed. This is the first half. We're, this is halftime. We still got two more quarters of this left. We'll have to do next week. But the point of this is, when we're reading this, you're like, okay, we get it, we get it, we get it. And God's saying, yes, and you're going to get more of it. And I'm not done because I'm going to impress upon you that to abandon me and go after them means I'm going to treat you like you're treating them. 
I'm going to treat you like the Canaanites you become if you abandon me and break this treaty. It's trying to show Israel the, the stakes, the eternal stakes that are in play. That, that Israel has to obey. Their this is their make it or break it. You know, this is their, you got one shot. Don't blow this, guys. Moses is going to die as soon as he's done with this. That's the importance. He, if you had one thing to say, your kids say you knew you were going to die. You gather your kids, your family, you're dividing up your estate, whatever. What would you say to them? What would you say? What would you want to say? This is what Moses is saying to Israel. Think of what he's been through. Think back all the way to Exodus, to his birth. Think of the 40 years he spent as a shepherd in the wilderness. Then the other 40 years he spent uh, guiding and leading these people. And then the last 40 years that he spent with this generation, the sons and daughters of that people that rebelled. His, his whole life has just seen the futility of abandoning God. So he's warning the people, pleading the people. There's tears in his eyes as he says this. Getting them to do not turn away from the covenant. And sadly, Moses is a prophet, not just a leader. Israel's, Israel's history is going to be a history of all these things happening. That's the sad part. To the point that some people read Deuteronomy and they go, oh, this is describing Israel's later history too well. So it had to have been written afterwards. Or... Moses was a prophet, and God was telling him exactly what would happen. Does the Holocaust fit in here somewhere? It's a good question, and it's one that we can't even touch. <laughs> because this is just the Babylonian captivity. Theologians since the Holocaust have wrestled with these kind of texts, and they said, so what does this mean for us when we are punished, when we do suffer? And there's been kind of different streams of Judaism that have wrestled with these things. Um, as Christians, we have to, I would say, we have to put a cap on it with the arrival of Jesus and say with the arrival of Jesus, a whole new world opens up. And these covenant curses take on new meaning because the covenant people of God consists of new people, which is Jew and Gentile together in Christ. So whatever the blessings and the curses are, in a modern sense, they have to filter through the lens of Jesus. How that plays into a theology of suffering is for Christians and Jews to consider, ponder, think of, read about, but uh, we got to go. <laughs> so come back next week. Uh, again, if you thought this week was scary, come back next week. That's all I can say. Have a great week.